We are in Romans. We are in the middle section of chapter 8. So since we only took one week off for Reformation Sunday, you guys remember everything that happened in the week before that in Romans 8, right? Yeah, of course you do. I'm lucky I barely remember what I said. So what have we done in Romans 8 so far? Well, number one, we are free in Christ. Number two, sin is condemned. Number three, we can serve God in faith. And number four, we are secure in salvation as we are secure in Christ. Simple enough, right? So why isn't the chapter over, Paul? Well, one, because Paul likes to run on sentences. And two, because now you have to deal with the so what? What does this mean? Because remember, you are, you are in the downhill stretch. It'll be January and February when we get back to it. But the book of Romans is you almost have to think of it like a roller coaster. So like if you're roller coaster people, you know, you hop on and they take you out of the little boarding zone and then you go click, 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 click. And it feels like a year and a half of clicking up the hill. Romans like one through eight is that clicking up the hill. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are basically the fake hill that they put in to scare you. And then Romans 12 is when they drop you off the cliff. Okay? So if, you're, if you understand it, so Paul has got to lay out all of these important things. Let's, let's be honest. If you don't go click, 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 click up the hill, there's, there's no roller coaster. There's no Romans 12 through 16 if you don't lay out the foundation of 1 through 8. And 9 through 11 make no sense if you don't understand them in light of 1 through 8. And Paul is actually beginning that here in the middle of chapter 8. It's kind of like, so what? So we're secure in Christ. We're, we're free from sin. So what, what does that actually mean in the world that we live in? Because Tuesday is coming and life is life and I need to know how the rubber meets the road on this. And Paul's like, I'm so glad you said that. Let's actually dive in and help you make sense of this. Sound good? That's what we're going to do today. If we do it right, we should be in a good mood when we're done. So let's see what happens. Verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Well, that just takes all the fun out of life. Why not? Why can't we live according to the flesh? Well, rewind to what he just wrote, what we did a week and uh, two weeks ago. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, because Paul does not go to the trouble of reminding you of this, it is my job to make sure you are reminded of this every chance you get, lest you forget. How has that been accomplished? How have you received this spirit and how have you been given life? We'll run to something like 1 Peter 1. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during, your during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, because that is true, 
because you have been redeemed by the work of Christ, because you have been washed in the blood, and you can sing that in your head now to yourselves, <laughs> because that is true, you have things that you have to remember. Things like Paul's previous letter that has been written, something like Galatians 5. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Because that is true, because you have been changed from the inside out, redeemed from your old feudal way of life. In other words, everything that Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 were talking about. Remember, you can't forget any of that and then just hop into Romans 8 and be like, you need to do better. Bad plan. Because of the reality of what Paul has laid down in chapters 1 through 5, you are obligated to live a certain way. So... What happens to the rest of this? Verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. Well, that escalated quickly, didn't it, Paul? I mean, why snow shovel to the face, Paul, all of a sudden? Well, because sometimes reality just needs to be stated, right? Up is up, down is down, water is wet, you know, the sun is bright, and these are the things you need to know. Go back to Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. I mean, you can't... This has been one of, oh, I'm coming around, here you go. This has been one of the failures of the modern American church experiment and the way we tried to do things, is we go out of our way, and look, we are all guilty of this. I find myself guilty of this on occasion. We go out of our way to try to soften everything about language. Now, we're taking it to the absurd in the modern world, like in the last five, ten years, but even before the last five to ten years, we just soften everything to the point of ridiculousness. And great example of this. I made a joke last week because it's one of my favorite things from church history when you look at like the Ivy League schools that one of them was literally founded because they're like all of our teachers are, and pastors are old and they're going to die soon so we need to have new people to take over for them when they're dead. And, and you know like old Jedediah because that's a good pilgrim name. You know he's over in the corner like I'm right here. <laughs> but why is he not offended? Because that was how a society talked about reality. It was a reality that you were going to live and serve God and die and that the world was going to carry on and we had to do something. Now, you want a good laugh? Go pull up the obituaries we put in newspapers and on websites today. It's like, oh my goodness, who hired Walt Whitman to write these things? Do I'm convinced that funeral directors like have the thesaurus printed on the wall for all the euphemisms. Be like, and, and lovely old Shirley has, has gone on to be with the Lord and is now living in a better place. It's like, she died. Why can't we say that? Because when I say that, what's your first thought? Well, that was a little harsh, wasn't it? No, they've, they've passed on. They moved beyond this mortal plane. They've gone on to a better place. They, there's something else other than just say what? They have died. Because it hurts, and we don't like to remember that reality. Your Bible every once in a while goes, snow shovel, face. Why? Because reality is undefeated and you have to live in a real world with real consequences and real things. Hence the reason why Paul tells you this. If you're living according to flesh, you must die. I mean, in discussion, this is what the entirety of chapters 1, 2, and 3 and most of chapter 6 were about. That if you are not redeemed, if you are not born again, there is a judgment that awaits sin because a righteous and holy God demands it. But, if by the Spirit... You are putting to death the deeds of the body. You will live. Now, Christian, that should be really good news for you. Because that's your standard. This is the standard by which you enter the world. This is your Matthew 7, that, the way you judge everything else. Are you putting to death the deeds of the body? Are you warring against your sin? We would love 
in the modern world to try to move that standard because we want to create our checklist. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. And who gets to make that list? Because who's the most important person in the world? Yeah, I am. And who's the most important person in your world? You are. So you want to make your rules and the Bible says, no, that's not your rules. That's not your standard. So what's your standard of righteousness? Well, Christ is your standard of righteousness. Well, how do I know that I'm in Christ? Well, are you putting to death your sin? Are you seeking to kill it with fire? Are you mourning over your sin? Are you regretting the decisions that have drawn you away from God? Are you seeking to go to this battle every single day? Because at the end of the day, fruit is being born in everyone. Everyone. So either by the flesh, things like Galatians 3... As many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. By the way, where is something like that written? Well, it's written in places like Deuteronomy 27. Moses tells them, Cursed is he who does not conform the words, conform, I'm sorry. Cursed is he who does not conform the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Guess what the next word in Deuteronomy is? Amen. Moses told the people, hey, God has given you this law. Cursed is everyone who doesn't do them. The people went, you're absolutely right. And then they went out and did what? (laughs) Oops, my bad. So either you are producing fruit according to the flesh. This is the rotten fruit that you're warned about. Or by the Spirit, Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now pause for a second. Notice something about your, your fruit lists. Do you ever notice how specific your fleshly lists are? So if you go to the list in Galatians 5, before that fruit of the Spirit, it's what? Idolatry, and lying, and dissension, and anger. And you're like, these are things that are very easy to define, aren't they? You know, my, my, my favorite in those lists is always disobedient to parents. Like, I should read that to my kids more often. Be like, you know, just so you know. <laughs> But those things are so easy to define. Why? Because they're so obvious. Yet when you get to your spirit-produced fruit, what are they? Love, joy, peace, patience. What happens to your definitions when you get there? Aren't they so easy and neat in a box? No, because if they were, the world wouldn't be able to look at you and go, you know if you were truly loving, you would do dot, 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 dot because we want to try to redefine it. And the Spirit doesn't give you your checklist. Because again, I've told you this before. If your Bible had to give you, all right, when X happens, you do Y. How big is your Bible now? For every situation in the world. We'd be like, all right, as we turn over to 9th Ephesians, you know, turning the pages, because the thing would be this stacked high. And would that work for a modern world? Would that work for a world with clay tablets and, you know, sandals? And would that also then work for a world with Nikes and Apple iPhones? No, because the checklist that works for the sandals and the clay tablets is going to give you to the iPhone and go, what's an internet? How does this work again? Instead, your Bible gives you what? It gives you the principles that are guided by a spirit that is redeemed. That's why your standard is nebulous and why I tell you to rejoice in this standard. That as you look at your sin, you put it to death and thereby demonstrate a love of God. 
that as you recognize the abrasive aspects of your personality, the abrasiveness that sin has brought to you in this world, and you seek to put it to death, you demonstrate love for neighbor, and you seek to live a life of joy that brings peace in every avenue that you go. It goes back to the idea of the trivia question from this morning. Your Christianity should go with you where? And have bearing on what parts of your life? All of it, which means that joy that you have in Christ should be a joy that goes into a ballot box and should go to Walmart. Okay, I gotcha. That joy you have in Christ should go to the DMV without an appointment on a Monday. (laughs) Some of you are like, stop it. When Cameron and I got our Illinois driver's licenses, I kid you not, we went to the one on Baxter Road because everybody said, go to Baxter Road. That's so easy. And you go in and go out. We spent six hours at the DMV. I I think it was like a Tuesday. I don't know. I was just like, I need to like order out for lunch. Is there, would that be frowned upon if I only got pizza for me? I'm just unbelievable. But yes, the joy of Christ should extend to the DMV on a Monday morning, okay? That's where your Christianity should lead you. And again, that's awkward and that's difficult because you're like, no, no, no. I want you to tell me the exact words I say to that fool behind the counter at the DMV. I can't. Because you have to extend love and grace and kindness and peace and patience and all of those avenues as guided by your spirit. Because you know what's going to happen? You're going to not extend, not extend kindness, not bring peace, not be patient. And the Holy Spirit's going to go, stop that. And you're going to be like, don't tell me how to live. I'm sorry. I don't want to. <clears throat> Welcome to where you get to put to death your sin. Welcome to the rejoicing in those moments because the Holy Spirit has said, here's your avenue. Here's your war. Here's what happens. Now rejoice because the Holy Spirit hasn't abandoned you. This is the confirmation of the work of Christ, that he has died and bled for you. How do I know? Because he has not abandoned me. He has not left me. We'll get more on that in just a minute, but verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Okay, this is something I mentioned not last week, or it was either the week before last or the week before that. I read to you again, like Romans 2 and Galatians 2, and I like begged and pleaded with you to remember those verses, like to mark them down somewhere. This is another one. It's coming in a few weeks. I'm begging you now to remember these passages, okay? So verse 14 says, we, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now, Paul's already covered this in Romans 2. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So this is not about the marks in your body. This is about the marks upon your soul as delivered by the Spirit because of the accomplishment of Christ. Now, this is not new information from Paul. You can go back to things like Hosea 1. The, num- the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now, this is the part that always gets me like in trouble with people. I'm going to say it again anyway. It's stuff like this and stuff like 
Romans 2 and Galatians 2, why the nation of Israel is not the full, the ethnic nation of Israel is not the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. So when you go to God cutting the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, what is he told about his descendants? What will they be like? How numerous will they be? Like the stars of the heavens, count them because how dumb is it to count the stars of the sky? Remember, when you did that when you were a kid, right? Like you laid down and looked at your window and then you went, one, two, three. And I'm saying, like, where'd that one come from? Did I count that one already? Ah! And then you fell asleep and you're like, eh. What could you always do with the nation of Israel in regard to their number? You can count them. How do we know this? There's an entire book of the Bible entitled what? Numbers. What did they put in this book? And of the tribe of Judah, and these according to their families. It's a, that's why all of you guys, like, you skip the genealogies because you go, okay, yeah, kids, 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 got it, got it, got it, kids, kids, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. And then you get to Numbers and you're like, I can't do this. And then you get to Chronicles and you're like, half of this book is just counting more people. Haven't you counted them enough? No, no, you haven't. You have not counted them enough because part of this is a lesson. Is this the fulfillment? Should that people in that land at that time been like, we are the people Abraham waited for. We are as numerous as the stars of the sky. We are as numerous as the sands of the seashore. Look, look, there's Dave and we can count all his people. See, we're them. No. Where is that fulfillment found? That's why the language is what it is in Revelation 7. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count. Gee, I wonder why he put that in there. What could he possibly be hearkening back to? From every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. This is why I always make a big deal out of the fact that Israel was always a joinable people. From the very beginning, you could become part of the nation of Israel. And you see this as the mixed multitude leaves Egypt. Because I've said this before, I guarantee you, there were Egyptians in Egypt who were sitting there going, what did the prophet say to Pharaoh again? What's going to happen? They're going to kill our kid. Okay, how do we stop this one? Do we have to go? Why did the name of the place just go right out of my head? Goshen, thank you. Oh my, I knew it was a G, but Gilead jumped into my head, and I don't know where that came from. I think I was thinking about that old dude from the uh, 80s exercise tapes, Galad, who was an Israeli guy. He used to do, did anybody? My mother watched those religiously on Saturday mornings, doing his exercise thing on the shores of the Dead Sea. She, like, she was convinced she was going to burn like four pounds every day. Anyway. <laughs> Nobody else watched Bodies in Motion with Galad? Oh, you have to go Google this. It's great, bad 80s, uh, early morning television stuff. Anyway. <laughs> no, the, the Egyptians are like, do we have to go to Goshen? What's a Blood. Okay, blood. We can get blood from a lamb. Okay, from a lamb. What, oh, a kind of lamb. I'm in. I'm in. Go get the lamb. If not, we're going to some Israelite's house. We're, we're not doing this again. Look, there was hail promised and there was hail and the cattle died and there's been darkness and grasshoppers and I'm done with this. And when it was time to leave Israel, Egypt, what do you think they said? You think we're staying here in this land of death and desolation and destruction? Good alliteration there. No, we're going with you. Why? Because you have the God that leads to life. And deliverance. And that's why that mixed multitude leaves. This is Israel from the very beginning. This is part of the promise here. Is the computer not cooperating? Verse 14. 14. <laughs> there it is. There we go. It wakes up. All who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God, the fulfillment of the promise, the children of Abraham, the people of God. Verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So in Christ, you are God's forevermore. So things like Ephesians 1. 
He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. And you have to pause here because this is Roman adoption. This isn't like you like grabbing a kid out of some Romanian orphanage today that you just spend enough money and you know they let you fill out the paperwork. Roman adoption was not just some one-off thing. It was widely practiced, and here's why. It was a way of securing station, position, and wealth. So it was not unusual for um, Roman senators to make sure that they adopted a kid who wasn't a nitwit because there was there were some issues in the late Roman Empire, to put it politely, with... Um, because you didn't want to marry outside of your station, you have to think of some of the Roman Senate and um, connected to the imperial families. You have to think of them like you think of Middle East, of uh, Middle Ages uh, European monarchs, where like you know this family in England is connected to this family in Spain, and they're trading off cousins, and got to make sure they're not too far apart, and also got to make sure they're not too close together as far as where they're related. That's late Roman Empire, and so it wasn't uncommon to not have surviving children, and it also wasn't common to not have children that could run a business or a family business or at all. I mean, this is how you end up with, um, if you know any of your Roman history, this is how you end up with guys like Caligula and stuff like that. It's just like, um, yeah, the elevator stopped somewhere. You know, what's, what's the, you know the, 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 the fries were not included in the Happy Meal, okay? It was, it was not good. So what Roman senators would do is go, okay, we're not going to lose all of our lands. We're not going to lose all of our possessions. So you, kid, come here. You're bright, intelligent. You're not going to squander the family fortune. Congrats, my son. <laughs> and that was legally binding. You can't dispossess him. You could actually dispossess your kids. <laughs> like So that lout that my wife gave me, he's out. But not, not, old, not, not old Joe here. Joe is in because Joe is bright, and he's going to make sure that our family name is continued on for, eternal, for eternity. And he is the kid that everything's going to pass to. And you couldn't write him out of the will, and it was his job to do this. And this was common in the Roman Empire. Now, who's Paul writing to again? Who's this letter to? The, the Romans, where are they? They're in, they're in Rome. This is, this is the way they would be seeing adoption. Why do you give them this picture? Because Christian, you're brought in by God because of the work of Christ, never to be cast out. And you are promised to be heir of the kingdom. This is the exact picture that Roman adoption would have drawn. That this is the kid. We have picked him. We have chosen him. We have brought him in. He gets everything. And Paul is going, that's you in Christ. Heirs of the kingdom. The promises of God. Of all that the prophets have foretold. Of all the promises that God has laid down. You are recipients. You are that people. You will get title. You will get possession. You will be in. And there's nothing that anyone that has any authority can do to put you out. Now with that in mind. Verse 16. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit. That we are children of God. Okay. As Jesus promised he would. So go back to things like John 16 with the upper room discourse. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. And by the way, 
you can see the active work in your, in, of the Spirit in your daily life and in the life of fellow believers. So um, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, talk about the giftings of the body, what the work of the Spirit is doing for the building up of the body. And again, what is that supposed to serve again? Another list of that is Ephesians 4. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. This is where your Christianity going everywhere. Is, this is what it is supposed to accomplish. The building up and edification of the body. Because here's what happens. You ready? You carry that out into the world and they smack you for it. Because, you know, the world just loves to see people trying to live righteously. That's like their favorite thing in the world. <laughs> I mean, we just love when people clean their lives up. We love when people get better at something, when they try to better themselves and get smarter. You know, everybody down in the dregs of the world just loves that. Be like, oh, yeah, have fun. Go enjoy that. No, no, they despise that. But when you come back here, when you come back to the people of God, what's the response? Because <laughs> what do we celebrate? All the little victories, every little step, the work of the Spirit, where you're like, hey, I was confronted with this, and this is the war that we had, and this is the battle that we fought, and this was the victory that we had, and we wanted a little bit more victory, but you know what? We get what we get. I joked during, during prayer time. When somebody, well, I've got a little bit of good news, please, because <laughs> Lord knows what do we need. We need some good news every once in a while, and it doesn't feel like we get enough of it, but what do we, what do, we do when we get every little bit? We rejoice. It's silly things. Like, like, like okay, do planes crash every day? No, 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 they don't. They actually crash very, very infrequently. You know the statistics. Everybody who's afraid of flying gets told this every time they have to go within five feet of an airport. It's statistically safer to be on a plane than it is to be in a car. And, and since I live in Rockford in the vicinity, it does feel like that some days, I will admit. <laughs> and yet we say what? Judas flight landed. Clark got up at four o'clock in the morning to go pick her up. And we do what? We rejoice. Because she's home and it was safe and that's a big deal. And it, doesn't, it shouldn't be a big deal in our modern technological world, but it's what? It's a big deal because that's people we know and people we love and people we care about and we're happy about that. You know, I'm going to make a drive that I've made, it feels like I've made a thousand times. You know, you've made a drive too many times. Like it's 1,100 miles to Cameron's parents. And I kid you not, I can tell you where the gas stations are that we stop at. <laughs> over an 1100 mile trip and like we were talking about that be like Cameron's like when we stop and we're like no that's that's not the, that one because she's telling me the story about the what one of the dogs did I'm like no, no 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 that was at a BP at the other part of Virginia we're talking about the Wawa in the eastern part of Virginia and I know where the loves are versus where the pilots are and I know where the cheap gas stations are and I hate myself for all of this and yet we're going to get there and be thrilled that we got there. And we're going to be ecstatic that we get back. And we're going to be thankful for every prayer that we have about it. Because we celebrate every bit of good news that we get. Because that's the grace of God that we get in our lives. And that's part of the joy that the Spirit shows us. Is that No, no, no. This is the knitting together of people in the world. This is how you work together. This is how we celebrate together. So verse 17, because this sentence isn't over yet. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. So, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So again, this is part of that adoption picture. When you're in, it's not like you're that redheaded stepchild at the family reunion. You know, I've told you this before. Every family has that one person at the reunion that you don't really want to have to talk to. And I'll warn you now, if you don't know who that is at the family reunion, I'm sorry. Because <laughs> that means you're the one everybody else is avoiding. If you know who that is, rejoice. 
Everybody's got that weird uncle. It's okay. Even churches have that weird uncle. We don't, we don't pick on Vern about it. <laughs> you knew I had to. It was either you or Clark, and I've already picked on Clark this morning, so it's your turn. <laughs> you know we love you. So this is part of that connection. You're not just in, but you're like at arm's length. Like you're in the kingdom, but not, not like really. No, no, you're, you're in, you're an heir and you're not just like an heir of a little bit. It's not like, well, that guy over there, he's going to get the house and he's going to get the car and you're going to get like the spoon collection. Aren't you special now? Isn't that what you always wanted was, was grandma Myrtle spoons? And you're like, I don't know. What are they made out of? Tin? No, I'm not into the spoons. <laughs> we did that when my grandmother passed away. We started going through all of her stuff and like all the, all the silver china. You're like, okay, please, if there's anything of value. And you're like, no, it's plated. <laughs> of course it is. It's always plated. <sighs> this is what you get for not having rich family members. I chose the wrong family to be born into. I got to do better next time. <laughs> if only, right? No. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. So again, go back to Ephesians this time, chapter 3. What's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians? That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, and that you be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, how do I know if that's the case? If indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. See, that's how I know I'm changed. Because when I go out into the world and I carry my salt and my light and I try to bring kindness and peace and joy and I get smacked for it, do I sit there and go, nah, that's it. I'm never doing that again. Next time I go to the DMV, watch what I say to those people. They're going to get a piece of my mind. Now, you've said that, and then you went home and immediately did what? I shouldn't do that. They're not going to give me my driver's license if I yell at them and tell them what I really think. And plus, it's not right. <laughs> Always give yourself that comfort to make you feel like you're actually important and made the decision yourself, and then you're like, and I'm sorry, and I shouldn't have been like that. I mean, be honest. You've done that in traffic. You yell at that fool that cut you off, and then two miles later, you're saying what? should not have yelled at them like that. And now I can't even find them to apologize. Because if I did, they'd think I'm some lunatic chasing them down to yell at them more. And that, that would end well, wouldn't it? <laughs> no, it never does. No, you come home and you go, they hate me. Well, why do they hate you? Because I love Jesus. Congrats. Good job. Go team. That's a, that's a win. Again, go back to things like Matthew 10. Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Why? Because if you're willing to deny Christ and get along with the world, who are you saying is your God? The world. Well, if the world is my God and I care more about what they think than what God thinks, then have I been changed by the Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit in the back going, what are you doing? That's not how we go. That's not, the, that's not the game we play. That's not. No, the Holy Spirit does what when you do that? Stop that. Don't you? You get that lovely little gib slap at the back of the head from, from God. And it's like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. And again, 1 John 2 gives you the same thing. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. And this is, again, one of those reminders that we have to have. Some of the fiercest um, designations and condemnations in Scripture are for the people who claim to be in. 
you know, it's Jesus, you know, castigating the religious leaders. Why? Because they should know better and they're doing a worse thing. Like, like when you go out into the pagan world and the pagan worlds are like, hey, come worship idols with us. Are you shocked? No, it's when you go to supposed believers and they go, hey, come worship idols with us. And your brain goes, wait, I'm, I'm confused. Well, it's not really an idol. They think it's an idol, but it's really not. And you're like, now I'm doubly confused. See, who's the worst person in this? The one who claims the name, but is a liar. That's why God gives the Israelites the same command. If a prophet comes and they're not really a prophet because they're just lying and they can't prophesy anything, what do you do? You take them out of the village and you stone them to death. And if the prophet comes to you and they are a true prophet and what they prophesy comes to pass, and then they tell you, you know what we should do? We should go worship Baal. What should you do next? Stone them. Go get the heavy rocks. Why? Because no, that doesn't fly. You don't get to give true prophecy and then be like, now here's where you disobey God. Get out of here with that. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this is supposed to work. The more dangerous thing is actually the inside. This is why Jude warns you what? Look, I want to celebrate. I want to rejoice with you. But I've looked at the church and what did I find? People leading you astray. What did Paul tell the church was going to happen? What did he tell the Ephesians when he, got to, when he got to leave them in Acts 19? Savage wolves will come among you. They will be inside the house. What do you tell the Galatians? Because you remember, the Galatians is like the one place where Paul would be forgiven for like not being more patient. I would not have had the patience with Paul. Because you got to remember the history there. Like Paul and Silas, or was it Barnabas? Or are they the same person? I'm getting confused on my history now. Paul and some other guy. <laughs> Read the book of Acts. It'll do you good. Went and founded this church and then left. And then when they came back through, there was a problem. And so the church sent them to Jerusalem to solve the problem. Jerusalem agreed with Paul. So Paul then went back to this church, told them what Jerusalem had said, and everybody went, yay, go team. And then Paul and Barnabas, I'm just going to go with Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas left and then found out that, hey, that problem that we solved when we went back through the second time and that problem that we solved when we went back through the third time, it's a problem again. That's why he's writing them a letter. The fact that it doesn't start out with what is wrong with all of you people is a miracle upon God. Because I would be writing that letter going, are you dumb or just stupid? How many times do we have to have this argument? Instead, Paul's like, grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. See, more patience than I've got. But when he's talking about those false teachers, what does he say? The false circumcision. I wish they'd go all the way with the knife and I'll let you use your imagination because you know what he's talking about. Why? Because there's nothing worse than someone who claims the name and tries to lead people astray. That's the problem. That's one of the reasons why your suffering for Christ, your bearing up, as James 1 puts it, under pressure is so important. It's refining. This is what, again, James 1, 1 Peter 1, um, Romans 5. Those are your, your hallmarks for that. This is what's being done for you, being built up. This is how Psalm 139 is fulfilled, where God searches you and knows your heart and leads you in an everlasting way. It's the refining off of the things that are not to be there, the chiseling away of sin and iniquity so that you are redeemed of God. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed with us. Again, because that's the attitude that a citizen of the kingdom is supposed to have in this world. And again, what does Paul tell you in Romans 5? This is what's produced. We stand in grace and we exult in hope to the glory of God. And we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. They can't move us. They can't shake us. They can't undo because it is God who holds us and God who has us. Verse 19. 
For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, this is fascinating because Paul has basically just said that the physical world hopes for redemption. And by the way, that's not unusual for Paul's theology. So things like 1 Corinthians 15. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Now, what part of the creation that you look at on a daily basis is immortal? Nothing. Everything is going through some sort of life cycle. Kay's got the grandkids. I can't pick on her to tell me when the sun's going to explode and turn into a red giant and kill us all. Because <laughs> she's like, not my area. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because she does chemistry, right? Yeah, you do physics. So you're supposed to know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I... But that's our life cycle, right? It's going to go red giant, and then it goes dwarf something, and we all die of heat death, and everything goes, you know, and then the universe collapses in on itself if you go far enough out into the future, right? Nothing lasts forever. But God's saying, you will. God's saying his good presence will. And God's hope, the hope that we have in God is the redemption of all things. So you go back to the garden. What are Adam and Eve in? A good creation. Is this creation good? No, I'm driving down the interstate at 80 miles an hour and there are deer standing in the middle of it in the middle of the night. Get out of my way, I have things to do. That's not a good creation. That's the critters, con, con, you know, cavorting amongst themselves, planning, to, planning my demise. That's, I'm fully convinced. They are in cahoots. It's like my children, you know, when the, when the two kids get off by themselves and they're quiet and you're like, wait a minute, they're plotting. The deer are plotting. But you're going, that's just one of those random things of nature. We joked about that. Cameron and I years ago actually hit a deer on the interstate. Uh, middle of the afternoon, we were driving, going 75 miles an hour, and I hit the John Deere emblem running across the highway. And so we called the uh, insurance company and went through that whole rigmarole. You know what that's covered under? The act of God clause. <laughs> and Cameron's like, so basically an act of nature. Like, you don't, so Cameron's like, Cameron's like, so how is this God's fault? I'm like, well, who else threw a deer at us? Like, nobody else has the power to tell the deer to be there at that time. So you're like, your argument is that God hit us with a deer. Yes! He's in charge of the deer. He's in charge of us. He's in charge of when we met. We met the deer at that time. And by the way, I'm glad we did because we hit him. We were in the middle lane, and we hit him, and he went, like, up and over. There was this little Honda thing next to us. And I say little because it was about the size of this podium. Like, you know those smart cars that they're like the size of a coffin for one person? It was a little bit bigger than that. And every day I stop, every time I think about this, I stop and wonder, if we had, hit, if we had not hit that thing, and it had hit that little Honda, there would have been nothing left. Like, it, the crumple zones would have met each other, and, you know, bad things would have happened. So I'm like, yeah, we, we did a good job. I mean, it actually lodged the engine. It embedded the engine in the block. <laughs> And that Toyota still drove. That was the worst part. Like, we drove it off the interstate. The tow truck driver drove it onto the wrecker. The, um, the garage we dropped it off at drove it in and out of the bay every time the insurance company called us. They're like, we feel bad scrapping it because it still runs, but it was running with the engine embedded in the block. So, like, yeah, that's not going to happen anymore. <laughs> but that's not a good creation. 
That's like random acts of insanity going on. And this happens all the time. There's storms and wars and rumors of wars and bad things happening constantly. That's not good. That's not the world I want to live for eternity in. And God's answer is, well, duh. That's why when you get to the end, it's a renewed heavens and a new earth. And it is God dwelling. And the things that have been undone by sin are in and of themselves redone. They are put back together by God. And that's the longing here. This is the mirror image of what's supposed to go on. So verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now, whose fault is that slavery? Who did that? Yeah, we did that. Adam did that. This was his problem, right? Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. Oops. Verse 21. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's our fault that sin and corruption has come. Who will get the credit for the fixing? Who will get the credit for the sinlessness and the good creation that will be? Second Peter 3. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for, the haste, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God gets the credit. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? My sin is my fault. My righteousness is his accomplishment. This is true then. It's true now. It's true in you. And it's true of the world you live in. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also, I'm sorry, also we ourselves, because that's not awkward at all, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So here's your connection. What should our longing and hope look like? It should look like the obedience of creation. Now stop and sound silly for a second. God threw a deer at me. Is that deer like, oh man, God, I don't want to go hit these nice people on the highway today. That's terrible. No, God said go that way and the deer did what? It went that way. Christian, this is supposed to be your life. Go out into the world. Be salt and light. Spread love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And you're supposed to do what? Go out into the world bearing salt and light, spreading. I'm not going to do that again, sorry. Because I always met, I, I, the list changes every time I do it, sorry. <laughs> You're supposed to just be. Your longing is supposed to mirror what the creation does, the obedience that the creation holds. Because, I mean, what's the alternative? Looks like Romans 1. Although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. That doesn't sound like the Christian work. That doesn't sound like the Christian in the world. That doesn't sound like someone who the Holy Spirit is looking at saying, stop that. It doesn't sound like someone who's getting the gib slap from God and saying, no, 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 that's not the way we go. We go the right way. No, how are we supposed to be? 2 Corinthians 5. We know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. A house, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. 
For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. In other words, we're constantly, not some of the time, not most of the time, constantly looking where? towards God and what he will accomplish, remembering in all things, which by the way, is how you actually go out into the world and bring your Christianity everywhere. You don't bring your Christianity and spread love, joy, peace, patience, and all that good stuff by going out into the world and going, all right, how do I be nice to these DMV people? Because it's not possible in your own power to be nice at the DMV. It is not humanly possible. Someone will have an argument. Someone will not understand a simple command. Like the paper tells you, like, check this box. They're like, I don't understand what it wants me to do. It wants you to check the box. I don't understand how to do that. And like for 20 minutes, you stand there in line and you're not moving. <laughs> you're like, I know these people. I've been in line behind them. You see, it's not possible when you go there and say, I'm going to be nice. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be patient. You're going to do what? explode with rage. And you're going to forget everything because who have you forgotten? You've gone in in your power and you've forgotten God. Instead, you go in and say what? No. How does God's light shine? How does the gospel live through me in this? And even though I want to strangle this person, that is not what I am called to live. By focusing yourself rightly upon God, you actually then live out the commands of God because now the spirit is at work in you and you're no longer fighting against him, but you're fighting with him and against your actual sin because you're paying attention. That's the distinction. That's the reminder. That's the groaning of life is going out into the world every day going, nope, it was not today. God did not come back this morning. I am still dealing with the sin. Therefore, I will fight it and glorify God, and we will rejoice in the victories that we have because he is still at work in accomplishing all of these things. Verse 24, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is not seen, I'm sorry, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But we, but if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. See, this is that now, not yet of Christianity. We haven't talked about this in a while, but we've talked about this a thousand times. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. And that's as close to my Vanna White moves as you're going to get, you know. <laughs> turn the numbers. So disappointed. I didn't watch that show for years and then turned it on. And I'm like, she doesn't turn the letters anymore. She just touched. That's just so messed up. It just doesn't seem as graceful. There was something to the little, just the little turn, you know? Now it's just like, ding. That's just wrong. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I, I can be disappointed every once in a while. But that's your Christian world. That's your Christian life. It's a now and a not yet. You have hope. That hope is not realized. But why do we celebrate communion? Reminder of the work that Christ has done. Reminder of the work that Christ is doing. Reminder of what? The work that he will do. This is where your hope is placed, that the God who has promised is the God who will deliver. 2 Corinthians 5. Being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent for the Lord, from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. That's part of that groaning. The living in this world going, nope, nope, nope. War, war today, War tomorrow, war every day until Jesus comes back, and then peace. And in the midst of my war, I will bring peace because I will demonstrate the love of God, the love that he has for me, and I will demonstrate the joy that I have because of things like 2 Corinthians 3. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. In other words... Rejoice, because that little slap, 
that kick, that reminder, that moment where you get to put your sin to death is the work of God in you. It's just a little bit of that down payment. You have to think of it like your mortgage that you didn't want to pay and you realize you signed up for something that you're going to pay until the end of time. Remember that? We came, Cameron and I, first, first house we ever bought, we, we had a lawyer with a sense of humor because we got done signing the, you know, the stack of papers that you have to sign. And so our little down payment check, we signed everything, they signed everything, and he took our check and he slid it over. He goes, congratulations, you sold a house. And he took the keys and went, congratulations, you're broke. Yeah. Can we trade back? <laughs> this, what did you do? You put the money down and then every month, what are you doing? Put a little bit more down, knowing that one day, if God gives you grace and the economy doesn't completely fall off a cliff, that you will have this paid for, and then you'll only owe the government their taxes until the end of time. <laughs> but we won't have that conversation right this second. This is the work that the Spirit is doing. It's like a payment. It's the down payment has been secured. You are sealed in Christ, and you know that. You have been secured in that. And then as you war against your sin, it's like a mortgage payment. It's a little bit of money. Some of it went to escrow. Some of it went to the balance. But it's a mortgage payment. It's that little fight. That was a reminder that the Spirit hasn't forgotten you, that he hasn't abandoned you, that he has accomplished things, that he's building up, that he is strengthening you, that he will bring you to an end, and that as these little payments are made throughout your life, there's coming a day when those payments will be undone, the house will be secure, the kingdom will be provided by God, and there will be nothing left to worry about because you will be at perfect peace. That's the world that Paul is trying to now draw for the Romans. That's the world that he is presenting to you. This is where we live. This is where our hope should abide in Christian. The beauty of it is, is this is what God has promised. And the God who has promised is a God who is faithful and he will deliver so we can be at rest knowing that as we are, we are at war, it is an accomplished victory because it has been secured by the work of Christ. Let's pray.